Miami is this beautiful, complex collision of cultures and stories and life. There's just no other place like it. When we moved from Atlanta here to plant the church, we didn't know what we were going to experience. But at the same time, the promise of what God could do here was something I was like, okay, Lord, only you can do that. From the 60s to mid-80s, Miami experienced transition spiritually, socially, economically. The church started leaving. Truth started leaving too. And that escape left a sour taste in the mouth of a lot of people in South Florida. The need for not a church, but multiple churches coming together to seek the well-being of the city that people would fall in love with Jesus is great. Where we are is on the east side of town, and so it's, it's Little Haiti, it's a community in transition. There's this artistic vibe, but at the same time, you have people who are extremely poor. It makes living here beautiful, but challenging to some degree. When you walk into our church, we're singing the same exact song in multiple languages. And people in our church are saying, thank you for singing in that language. That's my heart's language. That's the language that I dream in. And when you walk into our church, it is amazing that there's yeah. Bolivians and Peruvians and Colombians and Venezuelans sitting on the same row. There's an international route here that you're just not gonna escape. When you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, you are helping to shape South Florida with the gospel. You are literally also shaping the world because this area doesn't just touch this area, it touches different parts of the globe. Jesus brings all of those pieces together, all of those stories, all of the people into a new family. And to see God provide things that I didn't even know that I needed. I still am amazed that he's providing the way he has. In Westwood, we get to be a part of a movement of what God is doing all across the United States. There are churches that are being planted in strategic cities that are, there's a desperate need for the gospel. And every Easter, we take up what's called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. It's an offering in which we gather our funds, and throughout the months of March and April, uh, we send these resources to the North American Mission Board. They then take 100% of what you give and send it directly to the field so that church planters just like these can get the gospel into different locations for the sake of Jesus. So if you're interested, if you want to give above and beyond your tithes and offerings to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it's a great way for you to invest in church planting throughout North America. This is something that Christy and I, we take great joy in being a part of, of financially supporting not only Annie Armstrong, but Lottie Moon at Christmas time as a way to see the gospel go forth through your, your generous giving and through our resources for the sake of the nations. You know, it was June 5th of 1944 that D-Day was set. That was the day that U.S. President Eisenhower set for Allied forces to storm the beaches of Normandy. But there was a problem, the weather. 
Chief meteorologist James Stagg predicted bad weather in the English Channel for that day and advised waiting. The president reluctantly agreed and decided to wait 24 hours. Now, German meteorologists saw the same bad weather coming, but predicted that it would last for weeks. So the Allied forces, they thought, would not come during that time frame. And so they sent many of the German troops away from there to go to war games. You see, the element of surprise was everything. So when June 6th came, the green light was given, the skies cleared, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, and the momentum of World War II changed forever. You see, the weather created a brief window of opportunity. It was the moment of truth. Invade now or lose the element of surprise. Everything was building up to this moment. Well, with the date set for the Jews' extermination, Esther's moment of truth had come. This was her chance to save the lives of her people and preserve the genealogy of the future Messiah. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called Unseen Sovereign. We're walking through the book of Esther together as a faith family, and we're seeing how God is at work in the lives of his people. Even though he is not mentioned by name in this book, even though he is never speaking directly to his people in this book, even though there's never a moment in which he performs a miracle, God is still at work behind the scenes. He is working for the good of his people and for the fame of his name. We see him as the unseen. He is behind the scenes but he is yet sovereign and he is providentially working through all things in the life of Esther and the life of his people throughout this book. Now, Lord willing, we're gonna be bringing this book to a close next week. And so if you wanna get caught up on any messages that you have missed, you can go to the Westwood app and you can listen to previous messages while you're cooking dinner, while you're working out, while you're fighting traffic on I-65. This is just a way to kind of get caught back up if you've missed any of these messages. We've seen up to this point in Jack in chapter one that Vashti is deposed as queen by Ahasuerus. In chapter two, there's a nationwide search throughout Persia to try and find her replacement. Well, the king chooses Esther. She's Jewish, but she keeps that a secret. Then you get to chapter three, Haman is promoted to number two in the country, and because Mordecai would not bow down to him, Haman manipulates the king in order to exterminate all of the Jews in Persia. In chapter four, Mordecai urges Esther to leverage her position as queen to save the Jews from death. He tells her, for perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Oh, with the possibility of death hanging over her head, Esther agrees to go to the king. In chapter five, she goes to the king. He extends the gold scepter. He invites her to come into his presence and says, what would you like, anything at all, even up to half of the kingdom? And he, she invites the king and she invites Haman to a banquet. Well, the two men show up to her banquet. They enjoy themselves, and they, the king asks her again, what would you like, even up to half the kingdom? 
And she says, well, I have an answer for you and I'll give it to you tomorrow. I would like for you and Haman to come back to another banquet that I will be holding. Well, the king and Haman are dismissed from the banquets. Haman goes on his way, headed home, happy, feeling good from the wine, having time alone with the king and the queen, but then he sees Mordecai not honoring him. So at the suggestion of his wife and his friends, he builds a gallows, 75 feet high, to hang Mordecai upon. In chapter six, however, the king can't sleep. So he has his royal chronicles read to him where he discovers that Mordecai saved his life from an assassination attempt but was never rewarded for it. Then Haman walks into the king's palace at the perfect time. The king asks, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Arrogantly, thinking it was himself, Haman pitched the idea of a ticker tape parade. How about that man should get to wear the king's clothes? How about that that man should get to ride upon the king's horse? The king likes this idea and says, yeah, let's go do that for Mordecai. Well, Haman went home humiliated. He told his wife and his friends all that had happened and they predicted his downfall. And when you get to chapter seven, this is the climax of the narrative. Everything has been building up to this moment. It is now or never for Esther. I want you to see the moment of truth involved, number one, the queen's desire. The queen's desire. Look back with me at chapter six, verse 14. As Haman's wife and friends, they pronounce his certain downfall, downfall, verse 14. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Now, this is the third time the king is asking Esther whatever she wants, even to half the kingdom. But notice in verses three and four how Esther treads carefully. She must respond in a way that she can save herself, she can save her people, and accuse Haman without implicating the king. Verse three, Queen Esther answered, "'If I found favor in your eyes, your majesty,' And if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people, this is my desire. See, Esther is appealing to the favor of the king. She is speaking to his heart as his wife because she knows that an attack on him is an attack on her. Esther's using the tact of Nathan the prophet from 2 Samuel chapter 12. When King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and ordered her husband Uriah to be killed at the battlefront, Nathan confronted him tactfully. He told the story of a rich man who stole from a poor man. And David became so enraged over this story. He says the rich man should be killed. And Nathan the prophet says, you are that man. 
So what we see Esther doing here is very similar to what Nathan did with David. Esther here, verse three, she is speaking words of wisdom. She's choosing her words carefully, but she's aiming at his heart. Then she states the facts, verse four. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. Okay, so she is now quoting the edict that Haman had written back in chapter three. She doesn't exaggerate. She doesn't lie. She's being factual. She's a truth teller. Then she concludes with humility. Verse four. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. It's amazing to me how Esther, she says so much in so few words. And some of you are thinking, I sure wish Pastor Kenneth would learn that. You see, up to this point in chapter seven, Esther, she's been the reluctant heroine, almost passive. But now she's speaking with wisdom. She's speaking with humility, with conviction, with clarity, and with with truth. Esther is functioning as a type of mediator. You see, in this moment, she's representing both Persia and the Jews. Esther represents the Persian Empire as queen, and she represents the Jews as her people. Now, do not miss that gospel parallel. Jesus is the greater and better Esther, who mediates between God and man. You see, in the middle of Job's suffering, he longs for someone who would represent both himself and God. In Job 9, verse 33, he says, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Well, Jesus is our mediator. He is 100% God and 100% man. And because God is holy and man is sinful, there is strife, there is hatred, there is division between God and man. But the perfect mediator, Jesus, brings peace between God and man. You see, God's righteousness and our sin meet perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. And just as Esther is mediating on behalf of God's people to save them from death, Jesus is our mediator. He's our mediator before God so that we might be saved from eternal death. Well, the king here in the text, he is angered by her statement. And so with the intensity of a double-barreled shotgun, he responds with a double-barreled question. Verse five, who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Verse six, Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. This is the spike of the football, y'all. The tone of Esther's response is that of intense passion. I imagine Esther turning her eyes in Haman's direction, 
pointing her finger right at him and saying, this is the man. This is the one who is guilty. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen, the text says. That word terrified, it carries the meaning of being overwhelmed with terror. Can you imagine Haman's face? Eyes get big. Fear in his heart. The king and the queen are staring right at him. You see, Haman went from honor to humiliation, to horror. Well, the king had to collect himself. He had to figure out what he was going to do, which led to number two, the king's deliberation. The king's deliberation. Verse seven, the king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. You see, the puzzle is starting to fall into place in the king's mind. He's been manipulated by Mordecai, excuse me, he's been manipulated by Haman to sign a death warrant against his own wife. All of the king's major decisions up to this point have been made in small groups. All of the king's major discussions he's had by seeking counsel and wise advice from his consultants, especially his top consultant who has just sought his wife's death. So he goes to the royal courtyard to think. He paces back and forth probably like a raging panther trying to figure out what he's gonna do next. Meanwhile, back inside, verse seven, Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Oh boy, this just got interesting. Haman realizes that the king is planning his execution. So now his only option is to beg Queen Esther for mercy. Now, according to Persian tradition, it is inappropriate to be within seven steps of the queen. Here is Haman throwing himself before Queen Esther. But verse eight, he trips. Don't miss the irony here. The one who wanted to kill a Jew for not bowing down to him is now going to be killed for bowing down to a Jew. Oh, this book, y'all, it's so rich with gospel imagery and irony and implications. Well, the king walks back into the room and he sees Haman on top of his wife. And the king's thinking as he sees this, who does he think he is? Is he going to try and do this in my palace? Verse eight, the king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. See, at this point, Haman's fate was sealed, which leads to number three, Haman's demise. Haman's demise. Verse nine Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there's a gallows, 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, 
who gave the report that saved the king. Now, do you see how all of this is coming full circle? The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. What a man sows, that shall he reap. Proverbs 26, verse 27, the one who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. That's what's happening here with Haman. You see, just as Pharaoh ordered all Jewish boys to be drowned in the river, one day all of Pharaoh's army would be drowned in the Red Sea. Don't miss that. Those who seek to do harm to God's people will eventually have it brought back upon themselves. The pole designed to kill Mordecai will now be used to kill Haman. Y'all, there's no such thing as karma. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. God is providentially ruling over every situation and over all things, including bringing justice to the wicked. If you are suffering right now, please know that you are not being overlooked by God. He is fully aware of what you are dealing with and he is involved in what you are enduring right now. He is in full control and he is working for your good. Maybe you're experiencing injustice right now and you're crying out, God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening? Hear me, trust the Lord Because even here in Esther 7, we see within 24 hours, Haman went from building the gallows to hanging the gallows. What he created to destroy someone else came back upon himself. God very well may be right now working to turn your situation around. You don't see it yet. Trust him. So what are our takeaways from the text? As we study this text, as we're about to be commissioned off this campus to go and impact our world for Jesus, what does this mean for us moving forward? I want you to see first that unbelievers will stand terrified before King Jesus. When Esther told her husband, the king, who was responsible, verse six, Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. His sins had found him out. There was no escaping, there was no running for his life. Consequences for his sin were about to fall squarely upon Haman and he knew he deserved them. And it compelled him to verse seven, beg for mercy before Esther, but it was too late. Can you feel the weight of this moment? There he stands. Guilty before the judge and the jury. His judgment will be swift and irreversible. Now take this moment and multiply it times God's wrath. That is what awaits for those who do not know Jesus. 
Jesus describes this judgment in Matthew 25 as the separation of the sheep and the goats, the, the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. This is the great white throne judgment. And John tells us in Revelation 20, when all unbelievers will be judged by the works, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the moment of terror. You're standing before a holy God, guilty, condemned. And far too many people leave this life thinking that they are heaven bound when they are not. And when they stand before King Jesus, there will be utter terror. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run from God's wrath. Nowhere to run from God's justice. You see, we all were just like Haman. We have all committed treason against the high king of heaven. And this is what all of us deserve because all have fallen short of the glory of God. Do you see why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news the world has ever heard? Because it means that anybody and everybody who trusts in Jesus can escape. You can be saved. You can be rescued from this moment. When you stand before God and you don't know Jesus, it's terrible. It's terror. This is why Paul in Romans 9, in Romans 10, he's weeping. He's weeping over Jewish brothers and sisters who don't know Christ. And he says, I would be willing to give up my salvation so that they might know Jesus. Because Paul knows that this day is coming. Revelation 20 is coming in which all people will stand before the Lord and give an account. Feel the weight of this moment. You and I, we were just like Haman. Guilty, condemned. We were right to be condemned by our king. But then Jesus steps in. He goes to the cross. He takes our hell. He takes our judgment. He pays for your sin in full. And he makes a way so that death now passes over you. He makes a way that through his shed blood you can be forgiven of your sin. He makes a way through the cross that through his condemnation, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. And so today, if you do not know Jesus, repent and trust in Christ. Turn your eyes by faith and look to Jesus. He died on the cross in your place for your sin in full, and he was buried, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, and he is alive today, and he offers eternal life to all who trust in him. This is the gospel. Do you see how precious this is? This is far more important than any trivial thing that you and I deal with every day. This is the most important thing. Because what happens 20 billion years from now, it's dependent upon those who trust in Jesus now. 
So why not give all that we have to this great mission of getting this gospel to as many people as possible while we still have breath? Why? It's because those who do not know Jesus, there is going to be terror in their heart when they stand before him. But the good news of the gospel, of Christ dying in your place, it leads to number two, that believers will stand confident before King Jesus. You see, once Haman had died, verse 10, then the king's anger subsided. Once Jesus had died, God's wrath towards you has subsided. The king's anger towards Haman subsided because a death had taken place. Now, because of Jesus' death for us on our behalf, we stand confident in him. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I in, then he, in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You stand faultless before the throne because all of your fault was placed upon Jesus at the cross. Don't miss this. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry at the cross. The wrath of God towards your sin and the wrath of God towards my sin was unleashed upon Jesus at the cross. We see Haman marching through the city square, covered in his shame, headed to an execution that he deserves. But we have Jesus, who marched through Jerusalem with the cross on his back, covered in our shame, and headed to an execution that we deserved. So that you and I, we can stand confident before King Jesus, because God's holy anger towards our sin was poured out upon Christ at the cross. Which leads us to number three. Jesus was lifted up to die in your place. The 75-foot gallows that were meant for Mordecai, they were applied to Haman. Haman is the wicked sinner that died instead of Mordecai. You see, the gallows were a type of cross. It's a place where people were impaled. Just as Haman was lifted up on this instrument of death, Jesus was lifted up on a cross for all to see. The reason Haman built the gallows 75 feet high, almost eight stories high, is because he wanted to shame him for all to see. He wanted the entire city of Susa to see the shame of Mordecai. Well, Jesus was marched up on top of Calvary's hill. And he was put up on a pole. He was nailed to a cross. Public shame for all to see. Do you see the gospel 
parallels here. You see, we look at Haman and we're like, yes, justice. You got what you deserved. But you and I are just like Haman. We have sinned against the high king of heaven. We have committed treason. And God is right to judge and to penalize. But he looks at those who trust in Jesus and says, I see my son. You're covered, you're protected because he was put up on a cross in your place. You are free to go. You see, we deserve Haman's punishment. We deserve condemnation, but Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our condemnation at the cross. He was gladly put upon a wooden cross. He was publicly shamed for our transgressions. And the beauty of that great cross is that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Praise God for the cross. So what is our response? And it's the impact point, and it's this. Ask the king to save you and your neighbors. For some of you, this is your moment of truth. It's right here and it's right now. Judgment is coming. Flee from the wrath that is to come and cry out for Jesus to save you. There's nothing more important than this. Your response is verse three. It's what Esther says in the text. Save me. Save my people. Well, that's the response of believers. Is you and I, we have neighbors, we have friends, we have coworkers who don't know Christ, and so we need to ask, we need to pray, we need to beg, we need to plead for God to save them. We need to cry out on their behalf, God, would you rescue my neighbors? Would you rescue my children? Would you save my grandchildren? Would you transform the lives of my coworkers? And God, would you use me as an instrument to impact them for Jesus? This is our response to this gospel. Is it begins by us crying out, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, would you save me? But we're also simultaneously, for those who have trusted in Christ, we're crying out, God, would you save my neighbors? Would you bring them to Christ? And God, would you even use me to help share the gospel to lead them to you? This is what we're faced with as a church. You've got to decide. Follow Jesus or stand terrified and condemned on that last day. Or if you trust in Jesus, you stand confident before the Lord Jesus Christ who took your place, gladly died, rose again, and offers eternal life to all who believe. So now your mission, while you still have air in your lungs, while you still got a beating heart, is we're gonna ask the Lord of the harvest to use us to bring people to him.